Well, good morning, church family. We've been in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and I personally have very much enjoyed it. You know, last week we saw how Paul gave a few examples of ways that he has taken his eyes off of himself and onto other things that are greater than himself, being the mission of Christ, the glory of Christ. Uh, and so he, he, he saw, we saw last week where he said, yeah, I'm in prison, but the guards are healing, hearing about Jesus, and so I'm good. And where he said, yeah, I'm in prison, but it's actually giving more boldness to the other believers here in Rome, so I'm good. And, and he said, yeah, there are people here who are preaching Christ to spite me out of their envy and rivalry, but Christ is being preached, so I rejoice in that. And he said, yeah, you know, I'd rather be selfish, and honestly, I'd rather die. I'd rather get out of here so that I could go and be with Christ. But it's better for all of you that I stay and continue to aid in your growth and your joy in the faith. There's kind of four little pictures there where we see Paul going, you know, here's an opportunity for me to look at myself and get upset, but, and here's another opportunity for me to look at myself and feel sorry, but, and here's another situation where I could get mad at what these people are trying to do to me, but, and I could also sit over here and look at what I would rather do and rather have, but Christ above all those things took his eyes off of himself. And so today, let's pick back up in Philippians chapter 1, the last I want to go back to verse 27. This is something we read last week, but it's going to help set us up where we're going in to this week's message. Uh, chapter 1 and reading in verse 27, Paul said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We read this last week so as to say that the gospel ought to have implications in every area of our life, that it ought to be seen in every area of our life. Another way that you could translate this when he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that term manner of life could have been translated as citizens. In fact, the Greek word there is, is uh, primarily uh, rooted in the same Greek word that later in chapter 3, where Paul says, as citizens of heaven. It's the same root word. So one way that you could have said this line here is that only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel or let your life. So he, he's right here in this phrase trying to call people's attention and eyes to the fact that even though you live in Philippi, which is a Roman colony in the region of Greece or in that day Macedonia, even though you're here, your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so let's live in a way that is worthy of that gospel. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And so it's after Paul lays out several ways in which he's taking his eyes off of himself that he goes on to say, now let your manner of, of life or your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the gospel, when I think about the gospel, this is what God has done for us. Remember Jesus Christ on the cross, one of the last things that he uttered on the cross was it is finished. Jesus on the cross declaring that my work here and now, what I came to do is finished, it's done, it's completed. The gospel that Jesus came down so we see the gospel is what 
God has done for us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So we see here that what God has done leads us to what God does within us. What God has done for us leads to what God has done within us. I'll say that one more time. What God has done for us leads to what God does within us. Meaning, if you have heard and received and believed in the gospel, that it begins a work in you. Remember, this is something we talked about in the first week from Philippians 1, 6, where Paul said, he who began a good work, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So this believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and coming to faith in him begins a work. What God did, what God has done, leads to what God does within us. See, if we have seen how infinitely we were indebted to God because of our sin, like I think a lot of times, especially in America, we're not really honest with ourselves with what we see in the mirror of ourselves. Like how often are we really honest with ourselves about how deeply indebted to God we were? Are we honest with ourselves about the fact that we were truly, hopelessly lost in sin to the degree where we could do nothing to get ourselves out of our circumstances? To where our only hope is if someone greater than us, higher than us, stronger than us, could reach down, and not only reach down, but come down, which is what we'll see later in this chapter too, come down to lift us up out of our hopeless circumstance. So if we have seen how infinitely indebted we were to God because of our sin, how hopelessly incapable we were of fixing our estranged relationship with God, if we have seen that judgment is what we deserve, but mercy is what we got, if we see that being cast away is what we merited, but being forgiven and welcomed and embraced and rejoiced over is what we got because of Christ Jesus, then that truth ought to be seen in every area of our lives. To live a life, to live a, as citizens worthy of the gospel means that those realities and those truths have pushed us out of living for ourselves, which is why Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And to remain here is to be fruitful laboring for the gospel. Those things ought to be seen in every area of our lives. Then after pointing this out, after setting his own example of taking his eyes off of himself and onto the surpassing worth of Christ in his mission, and after stating that the gospel has implications on the way we live, he then begins to peel back that onion a little bit more. Let's get into these layers here to emphasize one extremely important way that the gospel affects us and our relationships. Again, at Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Here we go. Notice this theme here. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, let's live our manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And that, that, again, goes into every area of our lives, but one place that he wants to put the magnifying glass on right here to the church of Philippi is to say, if your life looks like the gospel, it will look like unity within the church family. He's pointing here that if, if the gospel has transformed you, that it ought to look like being of one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the work of the gospel. See, apparently some points of division had begun creeping into the church in Philippi. We can see this a couple of times in this letter, Paul calling the church to unity, to be of one heart, one mind, one spirit. And so apparently we don't know, it's not seen in this passage what the things were that began to divide them, but it's clear that some divisions had begun to set place that had caused them to start to separate. It could have been that some people were putting noodles in their chili and some weren't. That's a serious issue. Could have been that some were saying soda and pop. Which one is it? Are, you, are we soda people or are we pop people? Or have you heard of these weird Texans that call everything Coke? Like in case you didn't know, when I was in Texas, you were in a restaurant and they say, what kind of Coke do you want? Well, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. Wait, what? Yeah. Soda, pop, Coke, okay. More seriously and more realistically, is it possible that the divisions that we saw that were present before the gospel united these people in the book of Acts in chapter 16, that first week where we realized that there were three different cameos of three different people, Lydia, the very, very wealthy Asian, and the slave Greek girl who was demon-possessed, and the Roman citizen Roman colonial soldier, those three different classes and those three different races, is it possible that over time, those divisions that were overcome by the gospel when they came to faith in Christ, is it possible that those divisions started creeping back in? We don't know, maybe. Is it possible, again, being mindful that we've got Asian Lydia and that we have a Greek slave girl, and this is 10 to 15 years after those things happened, but also being in the midst of a Roman colony, is it possible that cultural pressures were influencing their practices, their beliefs, their lifestyle? Which is also maybe why Paul is saying citizens worthy of the gospel. And later in the letter he says, as citizens of heaven trying to remind them, listen, your citizenship is so much higher than Macedonia, higher than Greece, higher than Philippi, higher than Rome, the colony that you're in, your citizenship is in heaven. And so these little divisions that you have, whatever they might be, whatever preferences or ideologies that you might have, let's realize that the gospel's higher and greater and the Jesus who brought us all together in one faith and one spirit, unifying us all together in Christ is greater than these petty divisions that we might have. Again, 2020 and 2021 are years we need to hear this. I have never in my life, I know I'm only 36 years old, in my life I have never seen two years where there has been so much division in the world that also creeped into the church. To where people have different views, different opinions, on different things, and it's not wrong to have different views or different opinions on different things. I understand, and people are passionate about things, but for the believers 
us. Shame on us if the gospel is not greater than those things. Shame on us if we allow those things to divide us more than we allow the gospel to unite us. The same spirit of God is within every believer. And so Paul is saying, if you're living your life worthy of the gospel, then it ought to look like being of one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Chapter two, he goes on with this same thing. Continuing on in chapter two, verse one, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's just sitting here going, guys, if the gospel has truly transformed you, I'm going to keep on banging this same drum until you hear it and you start banging it with me, that the gospel is greater than what could divide us. And the Holy Spirit is stronger than what could separate us. And God has called us into one mind, one heart, one spirit. Let's all be on mission together for Christ because our mission for God to reach other people and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than these other little sounds and these other little noises that try to be louder than us banging the gospel drum. If you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, one of the most clearly visible traits among us ought to be the unity within us. Now Paul, like I said, he goes on and he presents a sentence here because this, this opening verse in chapter 2 is kind of interesting because he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation. So, so that if there, is he posing that to say that there's a possibility that there's not comfort in Christ? Does that if mean if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love? This is no different. Uh, it, it could easily say since there is. Uh, encouragement in Christ, in Christ, and since there is comfort in love, it's no different than if my wife said to me, Stephen, if you love me, make sure your underwear and socks make it to the hamper. <laughs> now, if my wife said that to me, if she said, if you love me, do X, Y, Z, the implications are not, do, do you love me because your socks and, your socks and underwear aren't getting to the hamper? There would not be a true question posed in that statement, if you love me, then do this. It's more of a, since you love me, remind yourself of the love that you have for me, which will motivate you to do this, right? So when, when Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's really saying, since there is encouragement in Christ, and he says, if there's any comfort from love, the love of God, more so is saying, since there is comfort from love and since there is participation, since the Spirit is working within us, since there is affection and sympathy in the body of Christ, complete my joy. He says, complete my joy. 
How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul presents a sentence that ought to lead to some introspection by implying things that ought to be true of them. This if is to imply that, hey, if God is doing these things in your heart, if God is encouraging you in Christ Jesus, and if God has, has given you comfort, and if, if God has, has given you his spirit, and if he's doing this work in you, meaning if you've believed the gospel and God has begun changing you from the inside out, complete my joy by being unified in Christ. Again, what, what I think he wants us to see here is it's not enough to be growing as an individual while not growing in unity with each other. Let me say that again. It's not enough to be growing as an individual while not growing in unity with each other. The implications of the gospel of reconciliation. Paul, writing to one of the other churches, talks about how we have been given the message of reconciliation, whereby we cry out, be reconciled to God. And recognizing that when we are reconciled to God through the same spirit of God, that we are also reconciled one to another. That we are one in Christ, united through his spirit. So, it's not enough to be growing as an individual while not growing in unity with each other. Listen, uh, this, this isn't in my notes, but I feel compelled to go there. Um, Matthew 18. If you've got your Bible or your, your app, your version, whatever, it's not in my sermon notes, but just go over to Matthew 18 real quick because I, I want to touch on something really fast because here's what, what happens a lot of times. People get upset about something or get offended at someone within the church or in their church family, and here's what by default, with sin natures and with, with flesh working, uh, wrestling the flesh and the spirit back and forth, if we're not walking in the spirit, led by the spirit, filled with the spirit, then we're going to default to the flesh. And so say someone in the church offends me or upsets me by whatever it might be, we tend to go over to our echo chamber to say, yeah, so-and-so did this to me and I can't believe can't believe they did that. You know, they just so hurt me and offended me. And whether or not it's right or wrong for you to be hurt or offended by whatever circumstances happened, I want to shine the light here on what Jesus says we ought to do when that happens. Not if it happens. Because listen, if we're talking about unity within the body of Christ, I'm looking at a bunch of sinners. And you're listening to a sinner. And so, all of us who have been made right with God are still, as long as we're here, at war between the flesh and the spirit, hopefully feeding our spirit more than our flesh, hopefully resisting the flesh, hopefully resisting temptation, hopefully growing and maturing in the Lord. But even every human who has not been fully perfected through going into glory into, uh, in eternity with Christ still has flaws still has areas that are being more and more made to look like Christ. And so, of course, of course, a church full of people that are not yet perfected in Christ but are being perfected, of course, 
we're going to hurt each other. Of course, we're going to fail each other. Of course, we're going to offend each other. We hope not to. We strive not to. We need to do everything we can not to and to walk in love. But when it happens, what do we do? Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go and find your friends and tell them about it. Wait, wait a minute. I read that wrong. That was the Stephen translation. It's not what it says, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell who? Him. Go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. What? <laughs> this is like foreign nowadays. The idea of someone hurting you and offending you and you going to them. This is not our natural tendency. And this is where we have to renew our mind and confront ourselves by what the word of God and the words of Jesus right now are calling us to. To go, okay, I'm upset, I'm offended. And let me just say this, I'm gonna soapbox here for a second. Sometimes we need to be big boys and big girls and realize we get offended about some things we shouldn't even be offended about. They didn't wave at me when they saw me drive by. You don't even know if they had something on their heart and their mind. They didn't see you possibly. They could have, you don't know. So, so, so I, I hope and pray that as mature believers growing and maturing in the faith that we can get to a place where we're less and less offendable to where even if somebody says something to you that is offensive, you can go, you know what? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to say maybe and hopefully they didn't mean it that way that could have been hurtful to me. I'm going to try and take the high road. I'm going to try and look at them with love and before they even ask me for forgiveness, like Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can I look at my master and let those words come out of my mouth? Can I let that truth and that model be in my heart through the Holy Spirit, God working in me, that when someone hurts me and offends me, my first thought, my first position is to go like my master and say, and Father, forgive them. They probably don't know the way they just hurt me. That's a great first step. Before I even go to say, you know what? God, help me by the grace of God, by the Spirit at work within me. Help me, Lord, to forgive them before I even go to them. And then let's, I'm going to obey Jesus and I'm going to go straight to them. Not to my friends, not to my family, not to other church members. I'm going to go straight to them first. And guys, if we did this, 95% of the issues are going to be resolved. When you get face to face and there's body language and you see the person in front of you who was paid for by the blood of Christ, just like you, the reconciliation is going to be much more common than the separation. And there's more to it than this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And check this out right here. Here's the answer. Here's the goal. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is the goal. He didn't say, if he listens to you, you got to prove, you got to prove you're right. He didn't say, if he listens to you, you get to be the better person. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's the heartbeat of what Jesus is saying right here? That conflict resolution in the body of Christ, the goal is always reconciliation. The motive right here, he's saying, in going to your brother is so you could gain your brother. 
Not so you could just go, hey, you did this to me. How dare you? You hurt me. So the heart is to gain back the individual, to reconcile and fight for unity in the body of Christ. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so if they don't, listen, I think 90 to 95% of the time, if you go to someone, most of the time in humility, it's going to resolve itself. But if they don't, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is just gathering, loving, caring, not gossiping, uh, <laughs> you know, ooh, what's going on? Busybodies, loving, caring, gospel-minded, biblically-minded people to say, hey, we, I, I see we tried this and it didn't work. Let's, let's get more in on this. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And that, that basically, if, if that's not working, go to your church leadership and, and get them involved. And then finally, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That, that basically describes those who are deliberately rebellious against God. Gentiles and tax collectors right there is just a picture of those who are intentionally rebellious against God. So, all that to say, Paul is calling us to unity in Christ to set aside our differences. And one of the main practices that the body of Christ we need to work at, we need to grow in, we need to keep practicing is this thing that if someone has offended me, I need to go to them to win back my brother, to gain back my brother. The heartbeat of reconciliation there that leads to unity. Okay, that was free. That wasn't in my notes. And now I've got to find my place back in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 3 and 4. Do nothing. Remember, he just calls to unity. And then here he gets into semant to some semantics of how do nothing, not something, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're all really good at this, right? Like we wake up in the morning like, I just want to think about everyone else. Generally, when my alarm goes off, my first thoughts are about me, like I don't want to get up. Like selfishness tends to be the first thing that happens, at least in my mind in the morning. We're not very good at this, honestly. And so when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, what is selfish ambition? That is basically looking to advance one's own agenda. So he's saying, in all that you do, do nothing with the heart and the motive, the goal of advancing your own selfish agenda. And what is conceit? Conceit is this uh, excessively favorable opinion, favorable opinion of one's own ability or importance. This is kind of overestimating our importance or our opinions. And it's a little like self-flattery. So he's saying, do nothing out of these two motives. Don't do anything where you're trying to Put your, your ambitions and, and your initiatives forward and don't do anything where you're looking more at yourself, higher than you ought. This is where Paul told Timothy, uh, charge those who are rich in this world to be not high-minded, but to trust 
uh, and trust not in uncertain riches, but in the living God who freely giveth all things to enjoy. And so this is the call here to not look at ourselves and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. This is trying not to flatter ourselves, but to be honest with ourselves. So how do we combat selfish ambition and conceit? How do we combat those things? He gives us the how right after that. By, through humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. This takes humility, but by, by that humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Again, by default, we're not really good at this, but the Holy Spirit of God with the Word of God can confront us and empower us to do what we're not really good at. And that's the grace of God. So, every one of us naturally looks to our own interests. This is what we, and again, this is the mantra that's preached and taught in our society and in our world today, at least in America especially, you got to look out for number one. You got to take care of yourself. You got to get yourself taken care of first, and then you can look for others. Many of you are probably familiar with the famous undefeated boxer Floyd Mayweather, Money Mayweather. He preached this over and over in interviews where he was talking about his themes and his ideologies. Man, I got to look out for number one, always looking out for number one, and then I can look out for others. And not just him, but many, many people. This is what our society reinforces. Not self-denial, but self-prioritization. I got to do what's best for me and look out for me and myself. And if me and myself is good and okay, then I can look out for the interests of others. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Let's put away selfish ambition and conceit by considering others above ourselves by counting others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The question is, can we take the same level of concern that we have for ourselves and our own interests and apply it to others and their interests? Can we do that? Not without the grace of God. Not without the Holy Spirit empowering us to do so. If we're full of the flesh not full of the Spirit, if we're leaning on our own abilities and just trusting ourselves to go, I'm going to be a good Christian boy today, you can't do it. But if you daily acknowledge, God, I am deficient in my ability to do this, and I need you to fill me with your Spirit today. God, I need you to lead me today. God, I need your grace to empower me today. I need your grace to continue to work in my heart, to form me more and more, to look like the image of Christ in my life in the ways that I am deficient to do so. And God goes, I give grace to who? The humble. God says, yeah, I can work with that. Because if we're not leaning on God to do what God is calling us to do, then we're trying to do it out of the flesh, which gives us glory and not him glory. And that's where he goes, I'm not going to have a part of that. And you can go ahead and try until you stumble and fall and realize you need me. Can we take the same level of concern we have for ourselves and our own interests and apply it to others and their interests? Let each of you look not to his own interests but also to the interests of others. The challenge here is that, that Paul is setting out some calls, some invitations, saying this is what we need to do. 
He's challenging us to do and behave certain ways. But he doesn't leave it there. Because if you look at the Bible only as the book of mandates for what you're supposed to do, rather than the invitation to be joined and unified in Christ, who gives us the ability to do it, you're going to be taking on yourself a burden you cannot bear until it crushes you and you realize you can't do it. And it's by beholding Christ and delighting in him that he changes us to be able to obey him. Continuing on, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Here we go. I love this. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some other translations say, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. But this one, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pause for a second. I want to say our bottom line for this week is that behaving like Christ comes from abiding in Christ. Again, our our default position, when we look at the Bible and we think about our relationship with God and we have this idea that, that God is good and holy and if we're going to be his people and if we want to get to heaven and if we want to obey him, you know, here's all the things we have to do. And that's backwards because we're just going to go, yeah, just like the children of Israel, when the law of Moses was read to the massive multitude of millions of Israelites, the law is given, and what do they say? We will do it every word. You got it, Moses. We're going to do it. Did they do it? Not so much. Okay now and then, but repetitively crashing and burning, trying to earn what God had dictated through their own ability. And this is the beauty of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. That it's not just, here's what I'm expecting of you. It's, here's the relationship with God that I have brought you back into by my goodness, my grace, paid for it with the blood of Christ. And I want to transform you internally by the Holy Spirit so that you can do what I'm calling you into. And this is where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And this just makes me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says that we are in beholding Christ. We are being changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. How do we do this? How do we, how do we fulfill these things that we are not capable of doing? It's not by looking at the expectations that are set out for us. We need to be aware of those and know the imperatives that come from God. But it's truly by simply beholding Christ. I want you to see something here as we continue reading. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clinged onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, I become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The other night, last week this happened. There was a night that uh, I went out golfing with some friends, nine holes, and uh, it was my worst round of the whole year, which is neither here nor there. But I went out, had fun playing golf with my friends, even on a bad night, still fun. And I got home, and my wife, which I expected, was playing games with her mom and her aunt and her cousin. They were having a girls' board game night. And I get home at like 
a little after seven, and our girls usually go to bed around seven is their bedtime. And I get home, and the girls are still up, and not only are they still up, they're still fully dressed, um, not in their pajamas, haven't had their teeth brushed and all this stuff, and I come inside, and listen, I'm just going to open up here and let you see sinful Stephen. I get home, and I go, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to get the girls ready for bed and do all this. I was hoping that they would be in bed by the time I got home, but okay. So I do. I go, and I start getting the girls for I haven't had dinner yet. I'm tired. And I get the girls ready for bed. I get them in their jams, get them pottied, get their teeth brushed, all that stuff, get them in bed. And then I go, okay, well, now I can think about myself because I hadn't done that already. <laughs> I can think about myself and I can start working on my dinner. And it's the late night and uh, being super healthy conscious, I went and got a frozen pizza out of the uh, freezer and I start preheating the oven. And before doing that, my wife then says, hey, Stephen, could you get some ice cream out of the freezer for us? And I'm like, I said, what did you guys have for dinner? Meaning, <laughs> you've already ate, right? Yeah. I haven't. You see me preheating the oven there? <laughs> sure, honey, I'll get you some ice cream. So I got the ice cream out of the freezer, scooped up some ice cream, gave ice cream. Okay, now I can get back to myself because I haven't been thinking about myself yet. Get back to myself and get back to my dinner and cooking dinner. And then some of those present said, oh, you got more? Do you have any more pizzas? Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've got some more pizzas in the freezer. Oh, could we have one too? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I go in the freezer, get another pizza. Watch this, you guys. Get ready. Here comes the applause. I put their pizza in first because I haven't thought about myself yet. Cook the pizza, serve it to them. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. <laughs> and finally put mine in and get done, and now I can finally sit down since I have preferred everyone else and enjoy my dinner. And I ate my pizza, and they're playing their games, having their fun, and then I sit down and open my Bible because I'm super spiritual. And I turn to Philippians chapter 2, just trying to get my heart and mind into the text for this week. And then I read this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I began weeping on the couch, confronted by the word of God, of my sinful selfishness. The crying pastor, woo -hoo. I guess get used to it. Vote no if you don't want to. Beholding Christ. It wasn't the passages where Paul says, think about others and not yourself. Those were good calls from Paul. But those calls set up, <laughs> set up the spike that was coming of beholding Christ.
that looking at Jesus is what calls us and empowers us to do what we can't do, what we're called to do. This is the gospel of Christ, that we are called to things that are higher and above our ability to do. But the goodness of God in beholding Jesus Christ and being transformed from the image of God from glory to glory, he empowers us by looking at him to do the things we cannot do, that when I look at this Jesus, the high king of creation, Lord over all of the universe, upholding all things by his power, who could have said, no, I don't wanna go. I'd rather stay here with you, Father, with you, Spirit, humbled himself and put on flesh, traveled through the birth canal, grew up, tempted every way that you and I are, humbled himself even unto death. And I love the way he says not only death, but even the death of the cross, the most humiliating death of the day in Rome. Beholding Jesus is the key to following and pleasing and with joy in our hearts, delighting to serve and obey him. Behaving like Christ comes from abiding in Christ. See, what God has done for us leads to what God does within us. And we are being called to certain actions that come from certain mindsets. That's why he says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, this mind is yours. You can have it. This mindset that Paul is calling us to is most clearly revealed in Jesus. I'm calling, you to G I'm calling you to unity, which is only achieved through humility. Now let me show you the best picture of humility there is. Jesus Christ, God of all creation, coming in flesh to die for us. I'm calling you to humility and unity, and here's how it's going to take place. So if we want to fulfill this godly mandate of unity through humility, it will only be accomplished in us by abiding in Jesus and beholding Jesus. This happens again, again, by taking our eyes off of ourselves and onto what is greater than ourselves, which is our wonderful Savior, his model that he set forth, and his mission that he called us to taking our eyes off of ourselves and onto him and his mission. Not only did he model this, he taught us this in Luke 14, 10, and 11. He said, go and sit in the lowest place. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He taught this, and then he modeled this, and now we see it manifested, and the Father has highly exalted him. Let's keep reading right here. And being found, verse 8 being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name is that above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus taught in Luke or Luke accounted Jesus' teaching that, hey, humble yourself. 
and God will exalt you. And then he models humbling himself and God exalts him and gives him the name above every name that has ever been uttered that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever to the glory of the Father. Seeing that Jesus invites us into it. It's not a burden, but it's a beautiful invitation to look at Jesus and say, God, help me. Jesus, help me. Help me live as a citizen worthy of your gospel. And let that be seen in my life to where I'm willing to humble myself and not think of myself more highly than I ought to, but to consider others greater than myself. To look at Jesus who didn't go, I'm going to grasp the equality and unity that I have with the Father and say, no, I'm not letting go of this, but being willing to look at the things in our lives where we go, I have a justifiable reason not to be beneath this person or not to go low. Because Jesus said, I'm not counting my equality with the Father, a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself to take on the form of a servant, human form, die, even the death on the cross. That the gospel would change us, not just teach us, but change us and change our hearts to where we could see the biblical call to unity, to set aside our differences, to work through our offenses and go, Jesus Christ is greater. And let's look at him so we can humble ourselves and fight for unity because we're all on mission together. Amen. God, you are so good. You're so faithful. Jesus, thank you for showing us. You taught us and you showed us. And thank you for your word that confronts us, your Holy Spirit that convicts us, and then also changes and transforms us. God, if any of us is bearing an offense between our brothers and sisters in Christ, God, I ask by your Holy Spirit right now that you would shine light on it. For any of us who have something that we're holding against someone else, that by your Holy Spirit, because of your love and your grace and your goodness, you wouldn't let us sit in it but you would confront us and call us lovingly out of that in humility. Give us the grace and the humility to consider others greater than ourselves. That as we look to Christ, Jesus, that you would change us from glory to glory, that we would be more and more formed into the image of Christ. God, not because we want to be able to go, look how humble I am. Not because we want to go, God, everyone, look how able I am to put, but, but Jesus that we could point to you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. God, let this mind be in us, which was in you in Christ Jesus. Let us be a model of unity. Let the world look at us and go, what's different within this? They're, so, they're all so different, but somehow they're unified. Let this be true of us, Lord. 
for our good, but for your glory, ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen.